morning. Happy Thanksgiving coming up here very soon, right? Um, yeah, and I hear today is also a national holiday. It's like the opening of uh, deer hunting season. Is that right? Is that what I heard? Um, was that yesterday? Thank you. Um, yeah, love, love, uh, love this time of year. It's a beautiful time, and, and um, something that I get excited about that happens in our church family. It's a beautiful thing. Uh, tonight, 6 p.m., you heard Jack mention it earlier, come and join. What I love about it is it is a family moment um, where five-year-olds will tell what they're thankful about. Um, so bring a pie tonight to share. Um, pecan might be a good choice. Um, and, and come and, and hear just uh, about God's provision just for a short period of time, and then we'll go downstairs and uh, celebrate together. But family business for a moment. Um, we are uh, entering the process with Neil Gammon as a, as a potential elder around here, which is really exciting. Uh, he's entering our elder candidacy process. Um, and so we're a, we're a congregational form of government. And so we're elder-led, not elder-ruled, if that makes a difference for anyone. We vote. Our congregation votes to affirm our elders. And so Neil is going through the process uh, of joining our team as one of our elders to help shepherd our church family. And uh, so behind the scenes, Larry Alm, our uh, elder chair, myself, are going through a book called uh, Wayne Grudem, Systematic Theology. Uh, and again, just doctrine matters, right? What we believe to be true about who God is matters significantly. And so uh, we'll have a time when probably next year we'll have Neil come and share and we'll be able to ask him questions as a family and, uh, and hear his responses as he enters into that possible role. Um, and, uh, and then as, as you heard Jack reference again, I, I love this time of year. Um, so we keep the lights on in here. I was just, I was reflecting on this in a conversation with someone recently. Do you guys know why we keep the lights on in here during our Sunday morning gatherings? Uh, because we're convinced it, it's not about me and Jesus. It, it, it is about we and Jesus. That there is a family that gathers on a Sunday. The biblical writers refer to those that follow Jesus as brothers and sisters. Right? God doesn't have grandkids. And so we gather as a family, and there's a possibility that your family might be broken. Your biological family might have some wounds and some hurts. Uh, and so we gather as a family. And so I get encouraged when I see someone's hand go up or, or something's taking place in their heart. I'm reminded of why we gather. And so uh, Christmas then becomes a time when it just feels like people are just a little more spiritually aware. That there's, a, there's an awareness to spiritual things around this time of year. And so we want to take advantage of just inviting people into the family um, that we've been adopted into. And so as an extension, we invite others into it. And, and that feels like where James is taking us this morning. So I stumbled upon a quote um, this past week. Um, was was reading uh, that I heard from a buddy back in California. A and you can hear some of the accusations in this quote, um, and I hope you can, can also see some of the danger. Here's what Barbara Bound Taylor, she's an Episcopalian priest, she says this, she says, the only clear line I draw these days is this, when my religion tries to come between me and my neighbor, I will choose my neighbor. Jesus never commanded me to love my religion. 
And so there's an accusation um, against the evangelical church broadly. Can you guys hear the accusation in there? And so I never want to get defensive. If someone ever shares their conviction, I want to believe that I want to look for what could be true, but I want to sort through what could be dangerous about it. And so there's an accusation that I never want my theology, my view of God, to come between loving my neighbor. And yet, as James has been telling us, don't be hearers of the word only, but also don't be doers of the word only. Instead, be hearers and doers. And so this quote strikes that there's an accusation that the evangelical church broadly is not very good at loving our neighbor. And so I imagine this is something that you guys resonate with. We live in a complicated and accelerated culture. And there's a book by a guy named David Kinnaman. He, he addresses that in five ways. He, he tries to put a finger on what that looks like as we try and move faithfully as followers of Jesus in our culture. And here's the five issues that he would say are pressures we're facing. That by and large, people are searching for identity. Who am I? Who, who am I really at my core? And they're fighting, we're fighting anxiety. How should I live in today's world? And experiencing, by and large, this loneliness. Am I truly loved? There's a stat associated with this book around a specific demographic. 30% of our time is consumed on our screens. That we are being discipled by something. 30% of our time devoted to screens. 30% of our time during a year is devoted to sleep. 30% devoted to screens, and and harnessing ambition. There's this anti-work movement, and and people are wrestling. What's my purpose? What what am I here for? What am I here to accomplish? And and, and feeling lost in the sway of all the things taking place. And this morning, it's the fifth one that I think James is going to help us see most clearly this morning. There's this sense of sometimes entitlement. What matters beyond me? And that quote from Barbara is, is attacking this. Do we often see beyond ourselves? Or are we so consumed and, and, and focused on our world that we don't often see the needs of those around us? That, that, that we show up on Sundays, we have our coffee, we sing some songs, and then we go away unchanged. This morning, James is addressing, do do we see the needs of those around us? And so, here's the flow of thought that we've experienced thus far in James. James started with, he just beat us over the head with steadfast faith, right? For about 19 verses, he said, this is what genuine faith looks like. That there is joy in the midst of trials and we pray for God's wisdom. And then he moved in and said, where does that come from? He said it's the implanted word that we receive with meekness. That it's actually through God's word we begin hearing from him. And then he moves most recently to say, so we're doers of the word, not hearers only. 
and he's given us three primary ways we experience life as a doer, that we avoid anything that compromises our joy in Jesus. We refuse to speak in destructive ways, and we care for those in need is where he's going this Sunday. That we stay unstained from the world, and that we bridle our tongue. Because the biggest gap in my life is where? From my head to my heart. These truths I believe, how fully do they get connected to my heart? And then, what feels like the quickest distance in our lives? From my heart to my mouth, out of my heart, the mouth speaks. And so whatever's in there is going to come out. And then this morning, I hope we leave with a greater sense of what does it actually look like for us to care for those in need. So I need someone to come up and join me for a second, though. Anytime, it'd be wonderful. Unless I gotta, unless we gotta do voluntel. Not you, Jeff. Stay all, stay, stay, hang tight for a second. Jeff is always my safety net. Jeff is always willing to help. But is someone else willing to come and join me for an illustration, real quick? I'd love your help. I would love your help. There we go. Come on up, Maria. It's good to see you. Yeah, you can give her a hand. The brave, the brave soul. Thank you. Um, do you know what that is? It is a white a cloth, a white T-shirt, a white T-shirt, and uh, and uh, yeah, just a just a white T-shirt. Could you hold that up for us? So I had a friend back in, uh, back in California, all he wore, this was his wardrobe. He just wore white t-shirts. And whenever they started to get old, he would get a new white t-shirt. Um, and that was just, that was it. That was the, I'm thinking there's a simplicity to it, right? So when you think, Maria, when you think of things that stain white t-shirts, what do you think of? Coffee, liquid gold is what she said. Liquid gold, the coffee, the nutrient of life, coffee does have some staining ability. What else? What are some other things that stain? Spaghetti sauce. Yes, that is, that's like, oh man, pretty, pretty much, yeah, the kids just go crazy with spaghetti. Um, mustard feels like another one in our world, um, and that's just like a staple of Wisconsin, right? With your brats, you have to have mustard. Do you guys have like a type of mustard you like to eat? It has to be a certain flavor. All right, Maria, if you put that on there for me, on the table, could you, and we'll flip it over here, how about that? Could you just spill some of these things on there for me? Uh, and don't, it just might go through, so be careful as you pour it on there. Just a little, just a little at a time. They're perfect, perfect, and you might have to like, Smudge it in there a little bit as it, yeah, there you go. That, perfect. Well done. Well done. You've done this before. You've done this before. And then, and then I'll give you this one. I'll give you that to stain on there a little bit as well. Some coffee. That's how you, and always at the end of the meal, do you ever find like there's one spot you get stained at the end of the meal or is it just me as I get older? There's always like one spot that just always, perfect. Well done. And then last but not least, Last but not least, some mustard. Oh, perfect. Perfect. Well done. You, yeah, again, a veteran. There you go. And mix it in. Well done. I mean, what, I don't have any napkins. Are you gonna, where are you going to wipe your fingers? I guess you could just wipe it on here. Oh, you, and you didn't even... 
Look at that. First service, and I didn't know this. Can you, can you hold this up? First service made an observation. They said subconsciously, David, did you know what colors you chose? It's the purple and gold. <laughs> Minnesota Vikings are... I mean, so when, when Fred shared last week, what did he say? He said, the way we experience genuine faith is this, we stay unstained from the world. But here's our challenge. We understand as we go through life, we experience stains, right? And so we fight for more of Jesus, but, but what usually happens sometimes when we experience a stain in our life, and there's that manifestation of brokenness, what do we do? And we just try and cover it up a real quick, right? Or, or we try and prevent other people from seeing our brokenness. Maybe we throw a jacket on. When we walk through these doors, we have to have it all together and have everything perfectly solved. And yet, what it often feels like is my life is marred with the brokenness that exists by just being a human, human depravity, and marred with sin. And, and, and yet, here's the difference. What do we say? For by grace you have been saved. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. That, that in the midst of my brokenness, I identify with Jesus and he no longer sees this. Instead, he sees the fight to avoid anything that would compromise my faith. As I continue to journey, there's still stains and yet we fight against, James says, to be unstained from the world. Thank you so much, Maria. And you can go see Fred. Fred will have a Firefly gift card for you at some point. Fred will get that for you. And now James is continuing what it looks like to have authentic faith. He says this, we care for those in need. And so here's where he's headed in the text. The person that has steadfast faith. So why that quote is so dangerous when you become a doer only at the exclusion of being a hearer, you miss out on what James is calling us to. He says, be hearers and doers of the word. And he gives us three ideas from the inside out we're being shaped. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives in his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God is this, to visit widows and orphans, orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So I hope as we go, my goal today, my hope is that we experience a little bit more of how we can practically care for the widows and the orphans around us. So pray with me as we jump in. God, you're so good. From the inside out, we are being transformed, not perfectly. We continue to be marred by the sin and brokenness of this world, and yet in your grace, you no longer see that brokenness. You see your spotless, sinless Savior and Son, Jesus. And so help us express our authentic faith a little bit more fully this week. Help us understand and hear from you, your brother James, what it looks like to care for and visit the widows and the orphans in their affliction. Always for your glory, we pray. Amen. Amen. So here's what James has been telling us. Hearers and doers to be exclusively a hearer, theology disconnected from the heart, 
to be a doer exclusively doing works absent from the theology is an incomplete picture of faith. Instead, he says, be hearers and doers. That is genuine faith. And so as we've been going through this, faith without works is what? That's not faith. Is not faith. Faith hearing only is not faith, but what is just as dangerous as this, faith plus works. Where somehow I feel like because, because I recognize my brokenness, I have to somehow do certain things. That, that I add works to my faith and, and now I'm trying to accomplish this faith on my own ability. Faith plus works is just as dangerous where I will myself to obedience, absent from joy, out of duty, just because God doesn't desire sacrifice, he says. David, the work has been done in your life, and so out of that work inevitably flows a changed life. Faith inevitably leads to works. And so James gives us three areas. He says from the inside out, be unstained from the world. Fight against finding your identity in anything else. And then out of that heart, may you speak in a way that reflects that faith. And then now he's going to tell us, how do you actually care for those around you? And here's what he says. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. He doesn't say human sexuality. He doesn't say greed. He says the way you talk says something about your faith. And if you're anything like me, what comes out of my mouth doesn't always reflect the most genuine experience. It's a sobering reality to hear my religion could be worthless depending on how I speak to those around me. And I feel like I've been given countless opportunities the past few months to speak in ways that are very destructive. James is saying that says something about my faith. Religion that is pure and undefiled. Religion that is beautiful before God is what? Is it in the high, high energy performance? Man, this is like recognizable by all. What does he say? To visit orphans and widows in their affliction. To visit Orphans and widows, the least of these, the most vulnerable in their place of hurt. And this was recognizable. And so here's what we're going to do. We're just going to work through it. Who are the vulnerable among us? For James, for James, it was literally widows and orphans. So for James, his readers, because we, we understand this, right? The Bible is written... For us, but not to us, right? There's a first century audience that this was written to, and yet we get to experience it. And so for James readers, those that this was written to, literally widows and orphans, and they understood this. Just a few Old Testament texts. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings and of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. And it only gets heavier. Exodus 22. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the 
the sword, and your wives shall become widows, and your children fatherless. Now, written to the nation of Israel, caring for those most vulnerable among them, a widow, whether that's through their husband dying in war, the kids, same situation, something happened, they were abandoned, care for the most vulnerable. In Deuteronomy, at the end of three years, you shall bring out a tithe of your produce in the same year and lay it up within your towns. And the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, and the sojourner, so he adds another category, the fatherless and the widow who are within your town shall come and eat and be filled, and the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands you do. And then they pick this up in the New Testament in the early church. The apostles are getting together and they see this need. Now in the days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists, those Greek-speaking Jews, Greek-speaking Jews rose up against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, Is it not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables? Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty of demonstrating on behalf of this community a care for widows and orphans. And it was having an impact. Here's a quote from a Roman emperor from the 4th century, and I believe it comes from Stephen Neal in this book, A History of Christian Missions. He says this, The Roman emperor Julian, writing in the 4th century, regretted the progress of Christianity because it pulled people away from the Roman gods. He said, atheism. Atheism because they didn't believe in the Roman gods, so early Christians were seen as atheists, not believing in Roman gods. He said, atheism has been specially advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers and through their care for the burial of the dead. It is a scandal that there's not a single Jew who is a beggar and that the godless Galileans care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. While those who belong to us look in vain for the help that we should render them. That there is this visible demonstration of what it looked like to be a hearer and doer of the word, to care for the most vulnerable among them. And so I read that quote, and there's, there's an accusation in that quote broadly against the evangelical church that we do not do a good job of demonstrating the faith we claim to have by caring for those most vulnerable. So I want to sort through it, right? Don't hear me say I'm affirming the full quote because she discounts being a hearer of the word. For us, though, test this. Who are the most vulnerable in our world? And in our town, I'm going to suggest it's both literal and figurative, widows and orphans. So test this, but here's, here's where we go in our world. Who are the vulnerable among us? We see the widows and the single moms and the fatherless kids in or out of the foster care system, uh, ki kids in general, and, and just what, what we see taking place broadly. Homelessness, handicapped, immigrants trying to adjust to a new life. And then one that I didn't, I caught myself in first service, just, just the unborn, a vulnerable population that exists that seems to get discounted in our culture. But in addition to economically depressed, who are the vulnerable among us? It's people looking for identity. Asking, who am I really? And those fighting anxiety, overwhelmed with that depression 
that just seeps into their souls. Those experiencing loneliness, deeply asking, am I loved? Those harnessing, those harnessing ambition, asking, what's my purpose? Lost, looking for any vocational fulfillment. God designed us. Work existed before the fall. Looking for clarity around purpose and vocation. And those feeling entitled, what matters beyond me? And we are so self-focused and consumeristic. Are they also the vulnerable that we interact with every single day? Some of whom might be us in this room. But here's where I go. Sometimes I look around and the need is so overwhelming. Where do you even begin? And, and, and these phrases might start filling your mind as they did mine. I, I, I donate to a bunch of charities. There's nonprofits that exist to fill these needs. In fact, there's even government agencies and programs that have taken over and stepped in over individual care. Now, I'm concerned about whether the resources are used responsibly. David, are you just saying just, just whatever, just make it rain? And it, I'm concerned about how resources might be used. Don't hear me discount that potential liability. I feel like I have nothing to give. Whether I just feel ill-equipped or unable to step into situations, I just feel exhausted, overwhelmed. David, don't you know how busy I am? My schedule is packed to the gills. I'm running my kids to these games. My grandkids are just clamoring for my attention. I work constantly. I have no margin in my life, and you're trying to add something else to my life? And I just don't know any widows and orphans. The need feels overwhelming at times. And so what would help us overcome to even get a glimmer, feels like James is implying this. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God is this, to visit widows and orphans in their affliction. He doesn't say to be visited by. He doesn't say wait for them to come to your door. The Greek word there, to visit, to seek. To seek transformation, to visit orphans and widows in their deepest distress, in their moments of need. And that word from that quote, Barbara, rings in my ears. There's an accusation against the evangelical church broadly that we aren't doing this nearly as well as we could. How might we continue to step in believing we have something to offer? Why? Why would we care for widows and orphans, literal and figurative? And I think we all hear and know the answer, right? In our heads, that gap between my head and my heart is massive, but we know the answer. Because we believe there is worth in every life. That we believe people are made in the image of God no matter who I interact with on a daily basis. That Genesis 1, on the very first page, in the very first chapter of the very first book, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male 
and female he created them. Why, why would I care? Why, why would I get outside of my world to extend any demonstration of care? Because we are so convinced that everybody we interact with on a daily basis is made in the image of God. And then recently, apart from anything I did, what happened? In the midst of a stain-filled life, Jesus meets me in my affliction and does what? Ransoms my soul. That I am broken and stained and marred, and yet Jesus, while we were yet sinners, dies for us and does what? Adopts us into his family. I've heard those words before, right? It's not a new concept. And yet a few years ago, we just celebrated Hudson's fourth adoption day on Wednesday. Fourth year. Those words of what it means that we have experienced adoption into God's family have been transformed in my life. We know the words. Paul tells us in Romans 8, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. And then John in John 1 tells us this about Jesus arriving. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. I remember sitting in that courtroom four years ago, and the judge with legal responsibility declares over us, Hudson, who was formerly a ward of the state of California, has now been adopted into the Bartosic family with every right and privilege extended to a biologically born, natural born son. That we've been adopted into the family of God apart from anything we've done. Marred with sin and stains, Usually Vikings colors, that's one, of the, that's one of the stains. And yet adopted. Why would we care about the widow and orphan? Because we understand that was us. We understand what's, tra- what's changed in our lives. And so, if we recognize the vulnerable among us, and we are convinced of why we should care, Sometimes the need feels overwhelming. How do we care? In our lives, we adopted three little beautiful babies. Could have been 12. Could have been 20. Why do you stop at three? I love the quote from Andy Stanley. Do for one what you wished you could do for many. At Hillcrest, we just want to help people find life with Jesus. One life at a time. And so how do we care about the vulnerable? Religion that is pure and undefiled before God is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. What might it look like for us collectively around here? I love that this is a value of ours. Collectively, we donate our resources pooled together locally. We have a legacy adoption fund. 
So if your heart is being stirred towards adoption, uh, there are resources around here that we collectively want to manifest this heart for the widow and the orphan. And then globally, you heard a few weeks ago about HOP, about our Honduran Orphanage Partnership, about La Providencia, a way that we try to attempt to step in. And in addition to this, how might we individually live this out? And so I was talking, this is, this is nothing new. I don't think this is earth-shattering. This isn't rocket science. Uh, there's a framework that has helped me in conversations that I've had with friends over the past. It's, it's befriend, model, encourage, and then inevitably invite into more. That I want to befriend, not making people projects, in genuine sincerity, befriend, model, encourage, and then challenge. Why? What would it look like to befriend someone? That we welcome sinners. There's this story that Jesus told to a lawyer about the Good Samaritan. Jesus says this, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law, how do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. And I hear myself in the response to the lawyer to Jesus What does he say? But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Where's the line? What's the the line that that I'm doing the bare minimum enough, just enough to get in? Like, what's the line? Who's my neighbor? Tell me, and I'll do it. Just tell me who my neighbor is, and and I'll, I'll care for them. What's that line? What's the minimum so I can check the box and be done? And instead, Jesus answered him in this way. And we're not unpacking the full text, but Jesus answers with, with a powerful idea. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and he departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by a chance, a priest was going down the road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, people that you would expect, anticipate, would love, pass by on the other side, but a Samaritan, Someone you would not anticipate as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever you spend, more you spend. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. And listen to Jesus' words. He changes the question. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor. It's no longer about the minimum of what I need, of who I need to care for. Jesus switches the question and says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. What would it look like to befriend people without making people projects, to welcome sinners knowing that I'm one. And instead of asking the question, who is my neighbor? I begin the lifelong process of growing of what it means to be a neighbor to those around me, to care for those in their affliction.
And as I befriend them, ma'am, David, but the need is overwhelming. (laughs) Don't you look around and see the hurt that exists? David, do you know the hurt in my life? And yet God invites us into a family where we begin to model. What would it look like to befriend someone who overtly holds a different political view? But David, they're wrong. Could I befriend the person in the workplace who can't pay me back? That they have no clout within the workplace as to elevate my status there. It would be a detriment to spend any amount of time with them. What, what, would, what would lead me to care? Could I befriend the person in the workplace who has no ability to demonstrate any capacity to pay me back? Would I befriend a neighbor who... Uh, who is less easy to love. You know this whole no fences stirs up a question of property lines. In California, we, they built big fences to determine to eliminate some of those tensions. <laughs> Can I love a neighbor who's not easy to love? And when what I serve on an organization or local position, both to befriend those who are leading and those whom they are serving. Could I leverage my time and energy in a local nonprofit on a board or in a position to befriend those? And then not just befriend, but actually enter the process of modeling. And how quickly does this timeline go? David, because I'm busy. I got, I got stuff to do. How much time am I really committing to this? We begin modeling with our time, with our treasure, with our talent people begin seeing something different in the way those that follow Jesus demonstrate their faith. And then we might step in and encourage someone. We pray, we watch, and we step. That we actually pray, believing God is at work in the people's lives and in our life all around us. And then make no mistake, though, we do eventually step into those conversations. Offering life with Jesus above anything else this life has to offer. Jesus wasn't nice, but he was good. Somehow, somehow Jesus steps into the pain of the woman at the well who's broken, blasts her for her brokenness, and she turns around and loves him for it. To which some people might reply, Yeah, but you're not Jesus. Which Casey tells me all the time about that reality. Somehow, there's a demonstration of love in the midst of challenge and the response is the desire to follow Jesus. So I don't know where you find yourself on this hearer and doer life. Maybe you find yourself on one of the extremes where it's faith plus works and and you're just willing yourself trying to eliminate the stains that, that continue to come on your life. And you're trying to overcome that by doing more and trying harder. Instead, there is a freedom to say, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Or maybe I find myself on the other end of the spectrum where I have all the right ideas in my head, but they never actually express themselves in a meaningful way in my life. But David, I know the right answer. 
tell me about the doctrine. I will nail it. Or maybe we're somewhere battling what it looks like to live out authentic faith as a hearer and a doer of the word. Not perfectly. And yet each step is another day of trying to follow Jesus, engage in a biblical community, and then visit and seek transformation in our homes, neighborhoods, and world. Pray with me. God, you are so good to us. You are so kind. If we find ourselves in that place, may Hillcrest be a place where we could share and carry each other's burdens. That rather than feeling like I have to cover up my brokenness, that I can can be genuine and authentic in the relationships that I have around me and and confident that people will come around me in my time of need. And, And if I'm in a secure place, help me overflow that love to those around me. To befriend, to model, to encourage, and then to invite and challenge people into life in your name. Thank you, Jesus, always for your glory we pray. Amen.